Man, ain't you glad it warmed up? Yesterday, me and Mark and Luke went to the meat market and it was warm and for the first time in a month I felt like I was alive. It felt so good. It's like, I don't know, this cold, I just felt like I'd been in a tunnel of darkness. Ah. I needed a hot rock to lay on or something. Hey, I want to thank Chris Herman for yesterday for speaking at the men's breakfast and giving his redneck hacks. I've already, one of them was he was telling us on how he makes maple syrup. He taps his own trees and stuff. And I've already heard rumors of guys buying equipment and getting ready to tap some trees. So if you see hoses in the forest coming out of trees and stuff, they're not making moonshine. They're, they're going to be making maple syrup. So uh, I also shared with them one of my hacks is, of course, you know, I have these back issues and shoulder issues and knee issues and neck issues and well, I've just got issues, okay? <laughs> And so my deal is I'm always looking for a heating pad or something like that. So what I do is I take two, two medium-sized potatoes and I poke holes in them and wrap them in a paper towel and dampen them down and put them in the microwave for five minutes, take them out, and then I put them on my back, back here or wherever. They make great heating pads and they'll stay warm for a long time. After they cool down a little bit, I take the paper towel off and I eat them. And I told the guys, I said, if you're ever over at my house and you're having baked potatoes, <laughs> you're probably going to wonder where they've been. <laughs> Are you guys like me that after you've been to the store for the grocery excursion and all the supplies that you've got to get in town and you're just ready to get home? I'm just ready to get home. I've had enough. Even sometimes whenever you're on vacation and you've had a great time. And, you know, have you ever noticed that whenever on the way to vacation, especially if you're driving or this or that, you're all excited and pumped up and everything, but on the way home, you're ready to get home. If you're out in the cold and working all day, you're ready to get home and get in by the heat. It's like on The Wizard of Oz. I've watched that show time and time again. I've had four, five children, and I've got grandkids now, so I'm sure I'll be watching it some more. But do you remember Dorothy, you know, like clicking her heels? There's no place like home. There's no place like home. That Wizard of Oz show, it used to scare me just those, the flying monkeys. There's just like something so wrong with a monkey that flies. And I remember as a child, I would hide behind the couch when those flying monkeys would come out. I was like, ooh. There's no place like home. Let's turn to Luke chapter 15, verse 11, and we'll go through 32. It's a lot of reading, but I'm the one that's reading out loud, so I'm doing most of the work for you. But follow along. Luke chapter 15, Verse 11 through 32. 
Luke 15, 11 through 32. It's the parable of the lost son. Let's pray. Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus. Lord, I thank you for this day. Lord, I thank you for this day that we get to come together and worship you. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to deliver your message today. I pray that your anointing would be upon this. In Jesus' name, amen. Then he said, a certain man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it. And let us eat and be merry, for this is my son, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. I am going to share with you guys something that you have probably never, ever heard. Matter of fact, very few people on this planet have ever heard this. You going to make me a promise? If I tell you... You can't tell anybody, okay? You know, if you tell people that, they always tell. Last week I said the closest I'd ever been to Australia was Kansas. Well, technically and geographically, that was wrong. The closest that I've ever been was Dallas. Dallas, Texas. Some friends of mine, they said... This was whenever I was 19. They said, George, they said, they told me and this other good friend of mine, they said, you guys should go to Dallas. They said, you could make it big there as entertainers. And we were like, oh, we could. I believe you're right. So what did we do? Well, we packed up our bags and we moved to Beverly. (laughs) We did. We packed up everything we had, which was... $700 between the two of us. And, well, this was 1984. And we had this awesome automobile. It was a 1966 orange and white Rambler. It looked like a Tijuana taxi. I mean, this thing, the, I was so appreciative. I loved this car. And the lady that gave it to me, she used to, um, have goats. And, um, she had already got her use out of it, and she had passed it on to me because I worked for her, and um, 
She used to go to the auction barn and buy goats, and she would throw them in the back seat and bring them home. Well, they had ate up all the seats, so I had just taken two blankets, those fuzzy ones, and put over them and used tarp straps and bungeed around them, and that was my seat covers. So we had this dude packed all the way to the gills with our stuff, you know, and um, we, by all rights, we totally looked homeless. Well, basically, we were homeless. <laughs> so we headed out to Dallas, and um, we, we didn't take a map. So along the way, we thought, hey, uh, you know what, we, maybe we better get a map. So we stopped and we got one and we said, all right, this is the direction we're going. About the time we hit Memphis, which it took us forever to get from Illinois to Memphis. Cody, how long does it take you to get Illinois? Four hours. hours? It took us like 12. (laughs) Well, my car really went fast. Like you could do zero to 60 in like five minutes. But... So it took us forever to get to Memphis. But once we got past Memphis, it started making this whining noise. And I looked at my buddy and he looked at me and, and I said, uh, I don't know, I don't know what's wrong. And it's, it like wouldn't shift right. And he said, I, I'm not sure, but I think it's either the brakes or the transmission. And I said, well, I'm not putting the brakes on right now, so it's, it's probably the transmission. And about 50 more miles, and we heard all kinds of real funky noises coming out of it. And then all of a sudden, it wound up real loud, and I slowed down, and evidently, I had lost fourth gear. So we had reverted to driving 35 miles an hour on the interstate. And I guess they have some kind of a law that says that there is a minimum of what you can drive on the interstate. And so we met that minimum, barely. But then all of a sudden, we lost third gear. And it was down to 20 and 25 miles an hour. And I mean, I'll be honest with you, we kept getting the finger. You know, (laughs) people weren't too friendly with us. About Texarkana, We were both like, oh, Lord, Lord, please, please help us. Help us get there. And for whatever reason, several hours later, and I mean several hours later, we rolled into Dallas. And we got to our friend's house or apartment, got there and knocked on the door. And they opened the door and they said, what are you guys doing here? And we said, you told us we should move here. And they said, we just, we just met, we just making conversation. I said, well, we're here. And they said, well, you can't stay here. <laughs> so we slept in our car that night. And um, because I had this in my mind, it was already midnight. And I didn't want to get a, we didn't want to get a hotel room because then we would have had to got out of the hotel room by 11 o'clock the next morning already. So we slept in the car, we got up the next day, went to the cheapest hotel that we could find, we was there for a day, we said, man, this is going to eat up our $700 like so fast, we got to get an apartment. So we grabbed a newspaper and we started looking through it, and the cheapest thing that we could find was, and 
Keep in mind, this was 1984. The cheapest thing we could find was $300 a month, but it included utilities. So we went, we we had the address, we had to stop and ask directions several times. You didn't have phones back then. We had to ask directions, we got there, and man, we were in the hood. (laughs) There was a reason this was the cheapest place ever. And we were like, man, I don't know about this. And we said, well, we don't have any choice. So we met the guy there. He said, uh, we said, we'd like to see it. He said, no, he said, you want it or not? I ain't got time. He said, we want it. (laughs) So we paid him the money. We went up. He said, I'll show you the place. We went up there. He opened the door. We walked in. And there was one room. We were like, where's, where's the rest of it? He said, this is it. It was like eight feet by 12. And it had a bed in it. This little full-size bed. And it had one little dresser in it. And we go, where's, where's the bathroom? He said, it's down the hall. And he said, what, what do you mean? He goes, well, you've got to share the bathroom. And we were like, oh, okay, all right. So anyway, we got in there, put our stuff up, and I said, i got to go to the bathroom. I hadn't went in like two days because I didn't, you know, I don't want to get into that, but went to the bathroom, got in there, and like the bathroom was five feet wide, by eight feet, nine feet long. It was just one of the small bathrooms. Had the little bitty sink, the toilet stool, and then the shower. The shower was, it wasn't a regular shower. A regular standard shower is like 36 inches wide, like what's out here in the camp building. A smaller shower is like 32 inches wide. This dude was 24 inches wide. (laughs) I walk in the bathroom, there's one guy in there shaving, another guy on the toilet, and another guy in the shower. And I'm like, what? And I said, how many people do we share this with? And they said, oh, there's 30 rooms in this building. (laughs) And I was like, no. 30 people shared one little bitty bathroom in there. They evidently didn't have any building codes in that part of town. And I was like, I went back and I told my buddy, I said, man, I don't know if I can do this. He goes, we don't have a choice. So anyway, we thought, we'll we'll just deal with it. We're going to schedule this so that in the middle of the night at like three o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning is when we will take our shower and use the bathroom. So we we decided we've got to go on the job search right away because we're going to be like so out of money. And that night we went out to eat. And I mean, we were like starving to death. And like we spent our whole grocery allotment in one evening and ate it all that evening. That next morning we got up. We decided we had to go job hunting. So we grabbed the paper again. And we went to the first place that we saw in there. I don't know if any of you have ever been to Dallas, but there's this hotel downtown there, and it's called the Adolphus Hotel. And back then, it was like 
top of the line. It still is. It's like a very, very, very glamorous, elegant hotel. And we went in there and we applied for jobs. And we, I wanted the bellhop job because that's like the most prestigious there at the hotel. They're the ones that got all the goodies. They got the nice suit, all the good tips and everything. And the HR lady there, she goes, I'm so glad you guys came in. We do have two positions open and we can hire you today. And me and my buddy, man, we high-fived. We was like, all right. And she goes, you're going to be stewards. And we go, oh, stewards. That is a fancy word for a dishwasher. <laughs> so granted, this was a very, very elegant hotel. And all the workers had uniforms. So... Um, she told she said, we're going to have to fit you guys for uniforms. She said, our tailor will come up and get you guys fitted for uniforms. I said, all right. And uh, I told my buddy, I said, you go ahead and go first. And he goes, no. And I was like, and anyway, the tailor came in, she grabbed him, and he was real reluctant. And he goes, um, I don't know. And I said, yeah, go ahead. And as he walked by me, I go, what's wrong? He goes, I'm afraid they're going to watch me get undressed. It was, it was a guy, you know, a tailor. You know, they're used to that, fitting people. He said, I didn't wear any underwear today. <laughs> I said, dude, what were you thinking? He said, I'm trying to save on laundry. Anyway, I said, just go. So we got fitted for uniforms. We never talked about that moment again, so I don't know what happened. Um, they fitted me for my uniform, and I thought, this tailor should be fired, because they were almost like scrub pants, but mine, like I wore, at that time, believe it or not, I wore a size 30 waist and 30 inseam. And these things were like 29 waist, 28 inseam. And they were like so tight on me. But anyway, nevertheless, we went to work. Uh, we left that day after, we, had to schedule, get, we were scheduled for work the next night. We left that day, and I mean, we were on cloud nine. When we walked out of that building, we high-fived each other. Man, we were just kings of the world. We looked over at where my car was parked, and it wasn't there. And all of a sudden, we looked over on the street going by this tall building called One Main Place, and there my car was going behind a tow truck down the highway. And we were like... And so I asked somebody, and they said, you got to call the tow company. We called them. They said it was going to cost $120 to get it out of the impound yard. I said, it's not worth $120. He goes, looks like it's ours. So... We just left it, and we were carless then. So we found a way to get on the bus system to get back to our apartment. And however, how we made it there, I don't know, but we did. We made it back to our apartment. We was there. The next day, we went to get back on the bus, but there was all these different buses going in different directions and everything. And... Um, this, uh, 
there, there was this gentleman, really nice, and we were trying to ask him how to, what to do. And he said, uh, and we had this, you know, weird look. I mean, like, we're in the hood, and he's as white as white can be. He looks like Opie Taylor, and I look like Jackie Chan. <laughs> and we're in the hood, and, anyway, and I think they felt sorry for us because we were so clueless. And this guy, he says, uh, we, and he had, a, he had a real thick accent and everything, and he asked us, he said, y'all's out hunting. And I said, what, what did you say? And he said, y'all job hunting. And my buddy says, he asked if we were all job hunting. And I said, oh, no, no, we got jobs. And he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's great. And we, he high-fived us, and we told him what we were doing, and he started laughing. And he said, uh, good luck. So he pointed us to where to go. We got on the bus. We got to the hotel. We're down in there, and I mean, for a five-star restaurant, everything was so elegant out front, but back in the kitchen, man, I was just surrounded by pots and pans and everything, and my buddy, they grabbed him, and they said, we've got a different job for you, so they took him out, and I was stuck back there, and there was about 60 of us kitchen workers back there, between chefs, sous chefs, and then busboys and dishwashers and this and that. So we're back there. Um, I worked eight hours without a break. And then at the end of supper that night, they had a big buffet in the French room. And back then, that was 1984, it cost $100 per person to eat the buffet. It was super, super posh. And the specialty was prime rib and lobster every night all you could eat on the buffet. Well, about nine o'clock, they would roll the buffet carts back to the kitchen to get cleaned up. And as soon as they did, I heard the supervisor, who was Hispanic, he yelled out, Apurate! And man, it means hurry up. And whenever he did, it was like everybody just collapsed they ran and they were pulling each other out of the way to get to this buffet cart. And they were grabbing food out of there, just like, ah, ah, ah. and I was standing there and I was like, uh, I don't think I want to do that. And they were like, they were like, a putate, a putate. They was wanting me to come over there and eat. And I was like, ah, I don't know. I don't know if we're supposed to do this. And they were like, see, see. And so I just kind of stood back. Well, two weeks into the job, you know, and we hadn't even got paid yet because you had to wait to get your check, you know. Well, our money was out. Two weeks in the job, I'd already caught on to this. That cart come out. As soon as I saw that cart coming out, I was the one yelling, a putate, a putate. <laughs> and the thing it is, is the prime rib, it was like the thing that everybody went to first. And I was pulling cooks and chefs out of the way. I got to the prime rib and I grabbed it and I was like, Argh. so I, I was doing the same thing. Anyway, it was, it was pretty graphic in there. Um, but we were surviving. That moment, I realized, man, one bathroom, 30 people, scrambling to get something to eat. This is just way, way too hard. 
whenever I got a bed, food, people who love me at home, man, I've had enough of this. I was already about two, three, four weeks into it. And I was smart though. I had kept $75 back because I knew if I come to the point to where I knew I had to get home that I would have bus ticket to get back home. So I told my buddy the next day, I said, man, I said, I, I can't do this anymore. Well, I had another night scheduled to work. And so I went ahead and went to work that night. We got off at 11 o'clock. The last bus left downtown at 11.30. We, our room was in the hood seven miles outside of town. They made me work a little bit late that night. And I don't know why I didn't just walk off the job because I was leaving anyway. But I went ahead and stayed. They made me work late. I missed the bus by about two minutes. And cabs were expensive even then. And so I thought, oh no, I gotta get seven miles from downtown out in the hood. And I was like, it was dangerous. And so I was like, man, I gotta get started right now, I'm beat. And I took off, and I mean, there was like the shadiest characters along the way, and all of a sudden I just got really scared. Man, I took out running, and I was crying, and I was like, <laughs> and I could have, I bet I was an Olympic sprinter at that time for like seven miles, and I was just praying, God, help me, help me, help me through this, and I made it home. I mean, I didn't stop running until I got there, and I got back to that dingy apartment, and of course, at night, about midnight, everybody in there would sit out on the concrete stoop. And there was concrete pillars and stuff on each side of it. It wasn't fancy, but that's just the way it was. I got there and I sat down out there and all everybody did every evening was sit on that stoop and talk about how they were gonna get out of there. Man, one of these days I'm gonna get out of here. And most of them had grew up in that area their whole lives. Some of them had never even, there was people that lived in that neighborhood that had never even been downtown before. It was crazy. Well, about 1230, we heard something, some loud bangs. I thought it was just one of the old junkers that was backfiring, but it was literally someone running across and somebody shooting at them. And it was going over the top of us there. And there was this really big lady that was sitting there. She was real friendly. She's sitting there on the stoop too. She grabs me by the back of the neck and pulls me down like that. And she goes, get down, get down. And I was like, okay, okay. And then she pulls me back up. She goes, look, you a real nice Korean boy. I want you to stay safe. She goes, you got to get out of here. She goes, you got some place you can go? And I said, uh-huh, I'm leaving tomorrow. <laughs> she said, you need to get out of here. Well, the next day, and I had my bag packed. I had a duffel bag and I had an old suitcase. And I went to the city bus thing to get to the Greyhound bus terminal. 
And I had all my stuff stuffed into that suitcase, and it wasn't, very, it wasn't a very good suitcase. And of course, everything in there was dirty. Like we hadn't been to the laundromat at all. And so I got up to the bus, waited. The bus, city bus pulls up. I got on the, stepped on the bus, and those bus drivers weren't very nice. I know more than got stepped up on the bus, and he hit the gas and took off, and I flew forward, and my suitcases went back, and I started screaming, and he slammed on the brakes, and I went like that, and my suitcase flew apart, and my clothes went all over everybody, and about five pair of dirty underwear hit this dude in the face. They were screaming at me, and I was trying to gather things up. I took a belt, and I strapped up my suitcase, and I was back there in the back of the bus just crying. I got to the Greyhound station, and I called home, and I said, Dad, I said, I'm, can I come home? And he let out a big holler and he said absolutely he said get home come on home we miss you and I said I'm coming home and so I got on the Greyhound and I was headed back and there were seven of us that didn't have a seat on that bus I don't know why they sold the tickets but we literally stood up from Dallas to Memphis standing up holding on to the rail I took one of my dirty socks and wrapped it around my wrist and wrapped it around the bar to hold me up because I was falling asleep. And man, whenever I got back, I think dad picked me up at Effingham. And whenever he picked me up, I was so glad to see him and he was so glad to see me. The prodigal had returned. Whenever I got home, I literally wanted to take my shoes off and get my feet to dig into the dirt so that I could feel home. It was quite an experience. I can't say that I'm glad that I did it, but I'm glad I had a place to come home, and I'm glad the Father accepted me back with open arms. Musicians, if you would go ahead and come. Most of you people have heard this story before, but whenever I was a baby, I got adopted, and my long-term memory allows me to remember, even as an infant. Uh, I was not much older than my grandson here, and I can remember the hum of the plane coming from Seoul, Korea to Chicago, and it was just a real loud, mm, so deafening loud, and... I know that sounds weird that a five-month-old five would have that in their memory, but I think it's just things, certain things that are so traumatic to us that you can remember. Just a very glimpse of it. I also remember the coldness that I had felt. And I could also have this snapshot that's a peripheral vision of just a cubicle. So I don't know if we were laying in... They were probably bringing a bunch of babies at one time and we were laying in these little cribs or something, but I remember the feeling of coldness. Whenever my parents picked me up, they had a receiving blanket 
and I had this blanket up till about 10 years ago and whenever it went in the wash one time um, it had shredded so I don't have it anymore but I'd kept it for many years but that blanket had always given me a feeling of warmness a feeling of security there's a lot of people that have sat in churches for many years but still maybe don't even feel like they're at home if you've been out in the desert or you've been out away if you're a prodigal it's time to come home Jesus will be standing there with the robe ready to wrap it around you and to put the ring on your finger and to welcome you home. Some of you people may say, you know what, I don't even know what a good home is. There's people out there in this world who don't have a good home life. And I'm here to tell you what, if that's you, God wants you to be the patriarch or the matriarch of your family to stand up and say, from this day forward, I'm going to make a home. I'm going to make a home for my family. If you're a, a youngster, if you're a kid, as a young person, this is a time for you to decide where your life's going to head, whether you want to make a good home for your future. Even the things that you do and the decisions you make now can affect your very parents and your grandparents. And you can be the one who says and stands up and says, we will make a home. If you would all please stand. If you've never received Christ as your Savior, I couldn't think of a better time to do that than today. We don't want you to miss out on what God has for you. As they play, any prayer needs that you have, please come forward.
It is our prayer that you have been blessed as you've listened to this message. If you would like to become a partner with this ministry, please contact us here at Orchardville Church. You can visit our website at orchardvillechurch.com or you can contact us by phone at area code 618-835-2677.